Hello, transgressors, boundary pushers, sheroes, and box exploders. I am on my own this week, bringing you another episode done in collaboration with Women Lit. And Women Lit, to remind you, is a Bay Area program that was created to elevate women's voices. And honestly, I can't think of anyone I would more rather elevate in this moment than Gina Frangello, today's interviewee. Her new memoir is called Blow Your House Down. The book has been met with wide acclaim, impassioned support, and also the kind of judgments and criticisms that people love to lob at women who write about their own authentic and messy lives. And I read Gina's book over the course of a few nights. I consumed it because I felt like it was consuming me. And the book is honest and real, so much so that it's actually difficult to read at times, deeply uncomfortable, kind of like she's standing up to the entire world to say, this is what women are taking the hits as we all look on nodding, not ready to claim our own truths quite so boldly. Gina dares to write about her desires, her indiscretions, her fantasies, her deep flaws. She's unflinching, definitely imperfect, not a good girl, and seemingly unconcerned with being read as nice or sympathetic. And she doesn't fit into other people's boxes of what a good wife or mother should look like, because in this book, she's writing about adultery, a long-time affair, and eventually breaking up her family with repercussions to all concerned, including her children. For readers, the experience of reading Blow Your House Down is kind of a paradox because you want to look and turn away at the same time. You'll relate to every word and you'll want to distance yourself from that truth. You'll question the author. You'll question yourself. You will finish feeling unsettled mulling over your own life choices, which is exactly how I felt when I was done. As I say to Gina in this interview, for memoirists and aspiring memoirists, this book raises the bar around expectations for how much you're supposed to say or allowed to tell. And it also elevates what memoir can be. And that's only one of the reasons I love it as much as I do. I also so appreciate Gina for the relationship we've started to forge in the aftermath of my sticking my foot in my mouth on social media in support of the negative New York Times review about her book, knowing nothing about Gina, knowing nothing about Blow Your House Down. The way women I know and admire rallied to her defense after that gave me great pause. And it led to my reading the book, loving the book, and posting my review and endorsement a couple weeks later. And the experience of reading Blow Your House Down and connecting with Gina after all of that has just absolutely been the literary highlight of my spring. I know you're going to love this interview because Gina is quick whip smart on topics women writers need to care about deeply if we want to break out of the limiting confines that are too often placed upon us by our culture, the measures of how we're supposed to behave that totally need to be obliterated. And Gina is certainly leading the charge on blowing up the boxes and it is glorious. I am excited to bring you all this interview with Gina, again, a women lit event and a live conversation between the two of us that happened in late June. But before we dive in, let me give you a few of Gina's biographical details. Here goes. Gina Frangello's fifth book, The Memoir Blow Your House Down, A Story of Family, Feminism, and Treason, has been selected as a New York Times editor's choice and received starred reviews in Publishers Weekly, Library Journal, and Book Page. 
She's also the author of four books of fiction. She's currently the creative nonfiction editor at the Los Angeles Review of Books and previously founded the independent press, Other Voices Books, and the fiction section of the popular online literary community, The Nervous Breakdown. Her short fiction essays, book reviews, and journalism have been published in Salon, the LA Times, Plowshares, the Boston Globe, Chicago Tribune, and in many other magazines and anthologies. And she runs Circe Consulting, a full-service company for writers with the writer Emily Rapp Black. And that can be found at ginafrangello.org. So here we go. Enjoy. Gina, just absolutely thrilled to have you and uh, and excited, really excited to talk about your book tonight. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I, I want to start by saying what a giant impact your book has had. I, this is There's just been so much conversation online and in women's circles. Uh, I, I think people have really been moved in various ways. You know, I mean, I know people have felt strong feelings, uh, and that has been all the way from just in awe of your bravery to uncomfortable with how much you shared uh, to just... I mean, I've heard everything, right? And so I wanted to ask you, because I think that women are yearning to tell these kinds of stories. Um, and if they could just open up their chest and let it all fly out, they could, they would. Um, but there's the filter of our minds that get in the way. And I wanted to ask what your experience was like to write such a really, uh, it is a brave, but also a really tell all book. And how did you handle your inner critic along the way? Well, it probably helped that, um, I thought that most of the book was just being written privately for me initially. Um, I believed that I was putting together an essay collection about my parents, about caregiving my parents, who are major characters in the book. Um, they, I published a bunch of, of, you know, short form essays about caregiving my parents, about growing up in our old neighborhood. And um, around 2015, 2016, when my father had died and I was getting divorced and I had been diagnosed with breast cancer, just so much was going on in my life that for the first time since I was literally four years old, I could not think about fiction. I had no you know, no ability to tap into that part of my brain. So I was like, I'll do this essay collection about my, my parents that I've always wanted to do. But on the side, I was writing all this stuff in secret about what was actually going on with me in my life. And I had no intentions of publishing any of it, but I did, um, I did read some at a reading series in Chicago and there was a response that led me to think, okay, maybe I'll show my writing group, which is a group of amazingly supportive women. And they said, you, you, you know, you've got to, you've got to go with this. So I had already, to a certain extent, unlocked that inner sensor by that point. Um, and so that probably made it a little easier. And what had your experience been with memoir prior to this? Because you were a novelist and you said you were writing short pieces. So this just came. But what, what did you know of memoir, read of memoir so, of course, um, I mean, I, I read a lot of memoir, um, but I had been writing short you know, short essays um, and long essays since 
probably about 2001. Um, the first one I ever wrote was about adopting my daughters from China. It was a cover story for the Chicago Reader. But then I started moving into more personal essay terrain. And so I've been writing pretty intimate um essays for a long time, but I had really never thought I was going to do a memoir largely because I think that I mistakenly believed that, um, you know, that I wouldn't be able to take as many risks formally and that it would just be sort of me telling my story here, this happened to me. And I was like, I was more compelled initially by being able to access truth through imagination. But it turned out that this was my most formally innovative book. So I, I guess, you know, my preconceived notions about what a memoir would be were incorrect initially. Well, and let's talk about that because it is different. It, it's experimental. You have lists. You don't often go in chronological order. There's a lot of cultural criticism in there that is about more than just your story um, and clearly, you know, that's another thing when memoir, I mean, I, I, we're going to talk about some of the more controversial stuff at too, because that's so interesting to people. But I think not following the traditional form of memoir can also agitate literary folks sometimes. So how, how conscious were you of wanting to break rules? You know, how did you come to the form? So Basically, um, the pieces that I had mentioned before that I'd written about my parents, and in fact, all of my short essays were mainly traditional form. Um, I mean, I did have a tendency to sometimes maybe write in a little bit of a circle. I have a tendency to do that in a lot of my work, but there wasn't anything like lists, dictionaries, any of the things that um, ended up in this book in any of my short form nonfiction. So I didn't really know what was going to happen, but when I thought about my favorite memoirs, the ones that have really made a deep impact on me, starting with probably The Woman Warrior, which is um, by Maxine Hong Kingston, for anyone who's not familiar with it, which was written in the early 70s. Um, I thought about the fact that those memoirs that take really imaginative, formal and conceptual leaps were the ones that had impacted me the most. My partner, Emily Rapp Black, and my business, as you all just heard, tends to interweave a lot of philosophy, a lot of theology, certain pop culture into her work. Um, my husband had written a memoir that was published in 2016, and he was really interrogating the nature of memory in his book and, and he had a lot of outside sources. And I thought about the fact that as an editor, because I've been an editor for a really long time, the most common reason I would have for rejecting work that was actually quite well written and interesting was that it was too insular. It was only about the person who was writing it and there wasn't a window out. And as soon as I started thinking about there being a window out, that was when the idea of a memoir really caught fire for me. When I realized that I could be the lens rather than the only subject. That's that's really interesting. Um, thank you for sharing that because I think it's such a process for people. And I, I loved how it turned out. I mean, it, it's really fabulous. And I, I thought I would pause for a moment. I didn't want to start with this context, but I think it's interesting for people to hear the story of how you and I got connected um, because people saw it unfold. A lot of the people who are here saw it unfold on Facebook. And of course, like a lot of people, I saw your review in it, the review of your book in the New York Times. Um, 
just thought to myself in a very kind of flippant way, like, oh, that's interesting, you know, like such a meta, like, oh, it's about rage and I'm probably not going to read that book and just made a sort of offhanded comment on Facebook. And what was so moving to me was how many women came to your defense. it It floored me, actually. I mean, I sat there just watching comment after comment after comment, people saying, you need to read this book, you know, saying, I've known Gina for forever. This is amazing. And it it stopped me in my tracks, you know, and I knew immediately that same day that I would go and read the book. (laughs) And it took me probably about two weeks, but I did. And then I posted on Facebook, what was in essence a retraction, you know, saying, whoa, this book blew my mind. And one of the things that I said was that, you know, it just kind of made me burn. (laughs) You know, I felt like my mind was on fire. My heart was on fire. And I think you've elicited that kind of reaction in women. Um, and, And so it's just interesting to see the extremes of the reaction, you know, like some people who are deeply upset and kind of feel like you're raging and other people who just feel like you've given them such freedom for what's possible in their own memoir. And so I wondered if you could speak to the scope of that reaction for yourself and maybe talk a bit about what the fallout has felt like since it's been positive and negative, which is interesting too. Uh, Absolutely. Um, One of the things that has been really fascinating is that even among the people who are writing to me because they love the book, because you don't usually get letters from people who didn't love the book, um, but from the people who are writing to me, there are two camps of people. One, I read it in 24 hours, and the other, I had to read it slowly and keep putting it down and walking away because it was very unsettling. And then I would come back and read it, you know, a little bit more. And so that's been kind of fascinating to me that, um, you know, that there are readers out there, I think mainly women, but obviously any readers out there who are kind of devouring it, like they're breathing it in. And then there are others who are dipping their toe in kind of trying to see what they think. But by the end, you know, I hear from them. And so that's been, that's just been really interesting and kind of indicated to me that, you know, that people are still really uncomfortable with a lot of this content. Like, like the people who are reading it so quickly, I think are so hungry for this kind of content. And then the people who are reading it slowly are kind of like, they're still testing the waters. They're not sure they may close the book at any moment. Um, So, you know, it critically speaking, I mean, the original New York Times review that came out on my pub day was obviously not the highlight of my life. Um, But, you know, so that was, you know, that was unpleasant, but, um, But other than that, the critical reception has been, you know, pretty positive. Um, It's it's been more, I think, an interesting thing to see how individual people online are responding, you know, that that there are definitely people who, you know, who are unhappy um, to read a book about infidelity. It's about a lot of other things besides infidelity. Um, You know, there are people who feel like, you know, you shouldn't talk about that. Um, I think there are also a lot of people who are, when I say uncomfortable, not in the same way of judging about infidelity, which of course is a hot 
you know, a hot topic for, you know, everybody's judgment and my own included, you know, but, but even things like writing about breast cancer, writing about chronic pain, writing about my parents, slow debilitation and death, like there, it's a very physical book. It's a book very rooted in the body. And I think that there are still so many taboos around women's bodies that even the aspects of my book that don't bring judgment of me as a person can still potentially make readers uncomfortable. Yeah, I think that's a a good assessment. Definitely. I mean, and I am glad you mentioned the physical because there's also quite a lot of sex in the book. And, you know, I was, there were moments that I thought, oh my gosh, she's going all the way there. And it was unsettling and also, incredibly relieving at the same time. I mean, I'm sure that's the paradox that people felt like, oh shit, this is, this is real. This is something I've experienced or wanted to experience. I mean, you talk about eroticism, you talk about fantasy. And and then of course your current husband, who is your lover for most of the book, um, is a memoirist himself and must have been supportive of the things that you put into your book, which I'm guessing is a blessing given your relationship. But what, how would you have handled that if he hadn't been, you know, what would have happened if he had said, I don't want some of this stuff in your book? Right. Right. Well, I mean, I of course talked to him about that because um, so initially I had my own kind of back and forth about, I knew it would be a very physical book. And I think all my, I think every piece of fiction and nonfiction I've ever written in my life has been profoundly physical. I was very influenced by the French feminist theorist, literature feminine, um, you know, the imperative of writing our bodies and people like Kathy Acker and Lydia Yuknovic and, and, you know, many writers who are deeply physical writers exploring women's bodies, Roxane Gay. I mean, there's so many. Um, But at one point, there weren't many at all. And I think that even now, when we could make a really long syllabus of of these women, they're still in the minority. Um, And that most books, yeah, it's assumed somebody has a body, but you you just say, oh, the sex was amazing. I was so excited. It was so passionate. And it's like, what does that mean? That means something different to everybody. So when I talk to my students, you know, I'll say, if you tell me that, you know, this character is beautiful, I don't know what that means. If you tell me that this character is a bitch, I don't know what that means. If you tell me that this sex was amazing, I don't know what that means. And so I, as a teacher and as an editor, I deal a lot with specific detail. And so for me to be writing a book that was largely um, about both the body's failings and the body's ecstasies, right? I felt as though I had to, I had to suck up the, you know, trepidation and, and be fairly frank. I mean, there's no such thing as tell all, right? You know, and that's a whole other area of memoir discussion where it's like, your memoir is not a diary, but at the same point, no, I, I, I talked to my now husband, then lover in the book. And um, I said, you know, I'm really on the fence about whether to include any specifics of our sexual life. Um, and I was particularly on the fence about whether to include any aspects of so-called kink. Um, and The reason that I was really on the fence about that was not that I was embarrassed or that I felt like it was somehow unacceptable, but because I didn't want 
the reader to mistakenly think like, oh, you know, she's sort of kinky. She met another person who's kind of kinky. So she left her husband, you know, so I, I felt the need to then kind of excavate that, like the, the beginnings of my sort of sexual fantasies, sexual identity when I was coming of age. Um, the fact that I was not going into this relationship with my then lover, now husband, as someone who had not already had a somewhat adventurous life. Um, I didn't want to I didn't want the book to be reduced to that, but I also didn't want to be afraid of showing that because I think that portrayals of, you know, whatever you want to say, non-vanilla sex, um, I think that they tend to be too homogenous in literature as in, you know, kind of the Stephen Elliott brand of, of non, you know, non-traditional sex. Like I went to a dungeon, my girlfriend came in and beat me up, you know, from came into the city to beat me up. And like, and I've enjoyed a lot of these writers, but I don't read a lot of books where middle-aged people in serious relationships are are also having, you know, I guess other than the sex that we might write into our mind if it just said we had sex and it was amazing. So I felt like it was important to be somewhat specific um, in order to essentially say to all the other women and men and everybody out there who are also not just kind of like disappearing into the quiet night of invisibility in middle age or who are not just having missionary sex every time they have sex, like to, to basically say like, this is part of the experience of, of love, of desire, of, you know, aging, that this is real. And there are people out there, your neighbors, your friends, like what we have been fed to believe about middle-aged women's sexuality is very limited. And I think that people need permission to first just even acknowledge that before they can write about it and not think like, oh, I'm the only one. This is such a secret. I appreciate that so much. And I think it is so much of, I mean, a lot of it speaks to how much bravery it takes to put something like that on the page, because there, there must be those moments that you're thinking, oh my gosh, you know, my neighbor is going to read this. My (laughs) mom at school, you know, all of those moments. Um, And I I wanted to segue into something that you wrote or said in an L.A. review of books interview. I'm not sure if that was a written or live interview, but you wrote um, many women tell lies out of a feeling of some fundamental lack of safety and the feeling that we have to lie to keep men happy because incurring a man's anger feels dangerous. I loved that. And I think it's so true. I mean, it's true in life. It's true on the page That's so much of what we do. And I will extend that obviously into our writing is about how we are going to make other people feel and that it's dangerous. And so I really appreciated that you wrote that and you said, um, in the end, living in the shadows and leading a double life is not a feminist act unless your life would be endangered by telling the truth. That really seems to be the ethos of this book, like maybe what drove you. And I would just love for you to unpack that a little bit because I I just thought, yeah, that's the key right there. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, obviously there are a fair number of people here. They have not all read my book. Um, so I'll give a little bit of, of context about that. Um, 
I mean, definitely, you know, you do have a lot of fear about people reading these things. Um, and in my particular case, I had come from a situation where I had been leading a, a double life. I'd been having a clandestine on and off affair for three and a half years. Um, and so I was very much living in the shadows, not just in the sense that I was having an affair, which is, of course, a shadow of its own. But I say in the book, and I think, um, you know, I think that this is something that maybe people who have been through addiction and recovery can relate to, too, is that when you're doing something that is hidden and that is a lie, everything becomes a lie. So you go out to lunch with your girlfriends and, you know, you're not sitting there actively telling them lies. You can be saying like, oh, the kids and I did this, my husband and I did this. And, and it can all be true, but you're fundamentally dishonest by the fact that you just have this whole alternate life that is a secret. And so for me, when I finally did confess to my ex-husband, um, I you know, it wasn't as though now I was like, I'm going to unzip my body and, and step out and let the blood and guts fall everywhere. I mean, I have a sense of privacy as everyone does, but I did feel as though I was no longer interested in trying to sort of like lead this alternate life that I wouldn't disclose to people. And so, for example, a friend of mine, um, one of the moms at, at my youngest school, um, had said to me, like, stop telling everyone that you had an affair. Like, stop telling everyone that's part of why you're leaving your marriage. You know, like, everyone's going to judge you. And I was like, I don't care. You know, I mean, I it, and it's not like I don't care. I have no fucks to give. Oh, swagger, swagger. Like, it was just like, I'm exhausted. I can't do this anymore. Like, this is just a fact and I'm going to say it. And so I started writing about it. I mean, my, my affair was, um, you know, was in a number of personal essays that I published prior to this book. And I just decided that, you know, I really wanted to look shame in the face. And, and I realized that shame and fear are very linked. And so that goes back to kind of what you're talking about. You know, I think that as women, Many of us, obviously nothing can represent the experience of like 52% of the world, but many of us as women are sort of trained to read people and give them what they want. And, you know, what does this person want me to say in response to that question? I'll say it, make them happy. Oh, I get positive feedback from making them happy. Okay, that worked. I'll do it again with this person, you know, and so a lot of us end up, I think, carrying that into our romantic relationships, whether they're with men or with women or anybody. Um, but particularly, I think women who are in relationships with men are very, very anxious a lot of the time about having approval with, withdrawn and in a sense, no longer having that protective auspice of having a man who says like, she's valid. What she does is okay. And I realized that a lot of um, writing my fiction, writing certain essays, which had also been, you know, everything I've written has been very physical and sexual, but I hadn't been afraid because I had the support 
of, you know, a respectable partner and so forth. And a man who said like, oh, she's a good writer, etc. And I realized I was a lot more scared now that I was divorced. And, and yet it felt even more urgent because I was just done with, you know, with living on the dark end of the street, so to speak. You know, I, I just couldn't do it anymore. It's fascinating what you're saying, because there's so much about what works, obviously, is the authenticity, you know, and a lot of people who have read the book have said that, you know, it's so authentic, it's so authentic, which is like, you're being very truthful. Um, And there is this unveiling that happens. And one of the things that I love that you do often in the book is like, well, I wish I could have said this, you know, but instead, here's the ugly mess that I actually was. And there's something so relatable about that because you are strong and you want to be strong, but there's this scene in particular that stands out to me where your uh, ex-husband is accusing you of being all of these things. You know, he's like, oh, well, you're bipolar, you're a cutter, you're, you have an eating disorder. And your response is, I wish I could say, you know, you're a misogynist asshole, but instead you're like, pitifully coming to your own defense, like, oh, no, not really, da, da, da. And I just, that, it was a very moving part because I think it's like there are two lenses through which we see ourselves sometimes, you know, like this kick-ass, you know, badass woman who's going to just like, you know, level everyone and say what we really think. And then there's this sort of like sniveling, reactive person that we can sometimes become. And I think that's very difficult to write on the page. And I just wonder if you have any thoughts about how to hold the paradox. I do. Um, I mean, I have a lot of thoughts about, I said the word swagger earlier, and I came to this book absolutely determined that this was not going to be a book of swagger. Like, I think that, you know, I actually think I might have come under less criticism if the book had been full throttle swagger, you know, because like, if you just march out there and are like, I did this, I'm not sorry, patriarchy bad, you know, misogyny bad, everyone deserved it, I found my freedom, you know, like, you're gonna have a certain amount of people who are in the cheerleading section saying, go girl, you know, whereas if you're like, yeah, like, I... I did all these shitty things and I knew while I was doing them that they weren't, they weren't right. And that they were going to blow up and that, you know, I had gotten to a point where anything I did was going to devastate someone, you know, where you get to that point, you've gone so far where there is no way out where someone isn't going to be devastated. And, and I, I take that really seriously. Like I take it really seriously. Our, our human imperative not to willfully hurt other people, you know? And, and so, you know, I was wrestling constantly in the book with the fact that, you know, yes, I'm now married to the man I had an affair with. I'm happy. You know, it's not, it's not a disaster story. I didn't drive off the cliff, the Thelma and Louise cliff, which I talk a lot about sort of the self-destructive nature of a lot of women's narrative and how that's been pushed on us very strongly. I've, I've, I've done it in some of my own fiction um, and in my life, you know, but, but that at the same point, there could be room for happiness while also room for acknowledgement that like, you didn't get to this place in a clean way. And, and I, 
I actually think that, you know, we have our swaggery authors. We have our swaggery feminist authors. You know, I mean, I, I referenced Kathy Acker earlier. You know, I mean, we have women who have basically been like, this is going to be a takedown of the way our culture runs and I won't be implicated because I'm oppressed, right? I'm a woman and I'm oppressed. Like, I wanted to look at the way that I was complicit in in not just, you know, not just my own quote unquote oppression, but in doing something shitty to another woman, in, you know, lying to my friends and family, like including my children. Like, I mean, so all of these things, it was important to me to hold that balance because while I didn't want to self-flagellate and I knew in advance by the time I was writing the book that it wasn't a book that was going to end with. And then I realized I was terrible and I went back and I, you know, everything that I was, you know, unhappy with was actually perfect. And yes, reaffirm, you know, reaffirm the narrative of reassurance and all of that, you know, but I, but I was also like, I can't walk away from this and just have people think, you know, Oh, unhappy, have an affair. Like, you know, that it's so much more complex than that. And that essentially the system of, of sexism, particularly as white women, you know, we participate in this and we participate in the way that we cage ourselves and we participate in, in not always having the best interest of other women at heart, you know, and I think that these things are important. And if we don't talk about them, we just have two ends of a dichotomy. One where it's like, you know, if I'm oppressed, then everything I do is justified. And the other is, you know, I'm a terrible piece of shit. And, you know, I I have to repent endlessly and and go back into my, you know, into my cave and, and, you know, be a good girl. And there is a broad swath between those two things that I think is not written into frequently enough. Well, and I love that you did because it's, and it's complex. I mean, that's another reason that maybe it's difficult because you, you really get into the complexities of just the female experience and the female existence. Um, and there are a lot of paradoxes. And in these events, women lit in general, so many of the women who come are writers themselves. And this event being about the freedom and the fallout, I mean, those two things also are dichotomies, right? But it's like in doing your memoir, I feel this sense of freedom for you releasing it, for the reader receiving it and being like, oh my gosh, I have the freedom to do this too. And that was another thing that I wrote in my review on Facebook. I felt that there was a, um, you know, again, like a double-edged thing there, which is on the one hand, giving women a lot of freedom because of what you've done. And on the other hand, setting the bar in essence of kind of a new way of thinking about memoir and doing memoir. And I wonder if you feel conscious of having done that with what you put forward. Well, um, not as complimentarily as you just put it. I mean, obviously, thank you. That's really nice. Um, You know, I believe really strongly as a writer, as an editor, as a teacher that, you know, First of all, we're all part of an ongoing conversation in literature, right? We're all, we're addressing, you know, many things that have been said and written before. We're never the first one to say or do anything. That being said, we want to find new ways in. We want to find new ways of expressing things. And I didn't want to 
write a book that, you know, people had read before. I really wanted to lean very far away from, I said, a narrative of reassurance. You know, um, I wanted to go with that adage of like disturbing the comfortable and comforting the disturbed. And I really felt very strongly that, um, that that couldn't be done entirely. Like, even if I were like interrogating my motives, even if I was being sexually frank, even if I was writing about the intricacies of pain and cancer and hip replacements and stuffing my parents' wounds with gauze and all of these physical things, I also felt like if I adhered to just this traditional narrative that in a sense, I was softening the, the blow in a way. Um, and I didn't want to do that. I wanted the, the reader to feel a little off kilter and like they didn't know what was going to happen next. And I'm really in, I'm really obsessed with form imitating, you know, form being in, in kismet with content. And so for me, I was in a lot of situations where I had no idea what was going to happen next. And that felt treacherous and that felt strange and really, really different from the way I had lived my life for a really long time. And so I felt like I wanted to break certain ways of storytelling, um, which I'm certainly not the first to do, you know, Um, but I mean, by any means, but I feel like we're still in this ongoing you know, dance with language. Like Pam Houston says, sometimes we must all conspire together to pretend that language can mean, right? And and I, I'm really interested in sort of that gap between language and experience, and how you can get so close, but you can't, you can't go all the way there. Like if I write about a headache, I can't give you a headache. Like if I, you know, but I want to get as close to that wire as I can. I'm, I, I've been obsessed with that my entire life as a writer, including in my fiction. And so for me here, sometimes the way into doing that meant just kind of breaking open what we think of as structure and, and narrative and accessing it in a different way. Well, it's great. Treacherous is a good word. And I read so many memoirs and there are very few that made me feel the way that your book made me feel. And there was definite discomfort and all kinds of things, but just that's why I'm saying that burning feeling, it's definitely something to aspire to, whatever it is, just to make your readers feel something. So kudos on that front. Um, Before we move into the audience Q&A, I wanted to ask you about your publishing journey because I know you're with Counterpoint, which is a small press here in Berkeley, uh, where I live. And I'm curious if you tried uh, to go with a big publisher and what their reactions were, I mean, did you face pushback on what you were trying to do from some of the other presses you tried to approach? So, um, so I am an indie press girl, you know, I ran a press, I launched a press. Um, I have had books that were shopped to the big houses. Um, Absolutely. Of course, I have a literary agent and they always are going to try that to, you know, try to get you a big pile of cash. Um, But, you know, for my third book, A Life in Men, I had an offer from Nantalise, which is part of Random House, and I had an offer from Algonquin. And the offer from Nantalise was more than twice the amount of money as the offer from Algonquin. 
And I ended up going with Algonquin and was very supported by my agent in doing that. So, um, you know, we did a little cursory shopping, but I I knew I wanted to be back at at CounterPoint. I had been with them in my last book. And I I simply think that Dan Smetanka is the best editor in the business. I mean, he really made my last novel better. And I knew he would make this book as much as it could be. And I feared, you know, I don't make a lot of money. So, of course, like, you know, if somebody would have been like, here is just absolutely a a bucket of cash, like I'm sure I would have been, you know, tempted. But I knew I wanted to work with Dan because I knew he would make the book better. And he did. And one of the ways he did that was by immediately, you know, essentially giving me industry or publisher permission to lean in hard to the critical theory parts, you know, the cultural criticism parts, and to not make it more of a traditional memoir, which I feared very much would be the case if I was with a big house. And, you know, so Dan bought the book when it was a bit of a a mishmash. It was was a bunch of kind of like essays out of order. A lot of them ended up going. I wrote new things. I completely wrote, rewrote the book at Ragdale without his permission in two weeks, um, you know, and then it was like, here, now what? You know, but it really helped me to, to first of all, um, not only eliminate repetition of both content and emotional notes, but also to widen that lens even more so that, I was the thing you're looking through at something bigger than just me. And he saw the book that way. And I saw the book that way. And the publicist, Megan Fishman, saw the book that way. And I think that would be really hard to get at at a lot of the, you know, maybe if I were like already super famous. But I think, you know, generally speaking, there is an idea that like a woman's memoir is supposed to be inspirational, a little bit bordering on self-help. Like, you know, she's supposed to, in a sense, like position herself as like a, a guru that you can, you know, like you model your life after this. If you do what she does, you'll be happy. I just wanted no part of that. <laughs> and I was afraid that it could go that way. I I hope people will go back and listen to what you just said, because that's so fundamental. I mean, when I think of what memoir is, it's exactly that, you know, that the, that the body and experience of the protagonist, the memoirist is the lens through which you see the world. And then everything that you did with regard to the cultural criticism is the reflection is the takeaway is the larger message. I, I wish all memoirists were doing that. So I'm, and I know you've spoken so beautifully about your relationship with your editor and so that's awesome, too, because not everybody gets that. So a wonderful story. Um, finally, just one comment more than anything. And this is a really more a, a plug for anyone who has not read the book to go get it, because the final paragraph honestly could be a standalone piece. It is like a gorgeous piece of poetry. And I wanted to ask, where did that come from? It's so lovely. You know, that was part of um, the, the final part of the book, which is called The Cartographer's 50 Meditations. And it was it was written when I was 50. Um, and it, it is the only part of the book that isn't linear. Like some parts of the book have flashback, but then we meet at the end where we're going to jump off from the next part. This That part spans from 2000 
oh God, I talk about my interstitial cystitis in the late 90s and it spans all the way until the time I'm 50. Um, there's a lot of cultural criticism. It's not all just about me. Um, but that part, that, that end was written really early on when I was writing in secret. Um, that, that part was, was in there from the beginning. And I think, um, you know, even when I was writing this just for myself, it's like, it wasn't a journal. It was, I was writing something that I didn't think I'd publish, but I was writing it as though I was writing it for another woman. And I came to realize that I was in fact writing it for other women and that it was not okay to just keep it. And that I had to put it out there, even if it was scary as hell. So yeah. And, um, and just also, since since this is the end before we take questions, I do want to tell everybody that um, if you have not already bought the book and you do end up buying the book, um, all my royalties are going to a place called Deborah's Place in Chicago, it, which helps um, work with women who are facing homelessness. And so, you know, I, I ultimately, despite my jokes about buckets of cash, which, you know, are welcome if you want to send them to my house. But, but um, I ultimately really decided that I wanted this book to be something for other women on every level. And so, you know, there are a lot of women out there who are facing similar problems to the ones I was facing. And there are a lot of women out there who are facing far graver problems and who do not have the time or inclination to read a book about my life, you know. And so I wanted to be able to have this book help them as well, particularly in this situation where so much of the workforce that's been displaced during COVID has been women, I think something like 75 percent. Um so many women are facing dire economic circumstances right now. So I just wanted to contribute in that way. Oh, Gina, thank you for writing this book for us. If you have not read Blow Your House Down, do. It's a worthwhile experience. And if you're writing memoir, take in what she's doing. Her rule bending, her takeaways, how she's supporting readers to see the world through the lens of her experience. She is the vehicle that you enter through which you see, feel, and experience it all. It is powerful and it is the foundation of good memoir writing. We hope you're having a good summer so far and thank you for tuning into this week's episode. I will be back with Grant next week. Until then. <laughs>